0: That's n o o m dot com to sign up for your trial today.
1: Welcome everyone to Long Ball Legacies, the podcast where, We take a look at the players who have helped tell the story of baseball, take a look at their careers and put them in the proper context, and enjoy and embrace what they've meant to us and to the game that we love the most. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Daniel Port. I'm the host here on the Petrolist Podcast Network. Uh, A fun episode here today. As from last episode, we started talking about Ricky Henderson, and we went through the first chunk of his career here, And really looked at the the player that he was and the the myths and legends and the fun stories that surround him and just was so much. There's so much stuff to cover that we ended up splitting it up into two episodes so we could really give it the due time that it deserved. And this is one of my favorite players ever. I just love Ricky Henderson. I grew up watching Ricky Henderson play. One of my favorite players of all time and this is actually part of a larger series that we're doing where we're looking at the prototype of player that seemed put on this earth to play baseball. Who's the, Who loved the game, who seemed to always have a smile on their faces, who but also carried a little bit of a swagger and a coolness about them that impacted the game and the people who loved it and watched it and all that good stuff. Before, we talked about Ken Jr., and then now we're wrapping up Ricky Henderson. And at the end of the episode, we're actually going to talk about if there are any current players we think fit this mold and kind of remind us of those players. Without further ado, let's jump right in. So let's step back and reset the stage here. We're about midway through the season around the trade deadline. In the year of 1993, Ricky Henderson is 34. We are basically 14 years into Henderson's career. He has just wrapped up his second stint with Oakland, where he, which included multiple World Series berths, including a win. And the A's had found themselves, despite their success... Moving on from what might have been one of the most successful teams ever, they had broken up the Bash Brothers by trading Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire. They they really were starting to look at this at this nexus sort of this this crossroads of whether or not they needed to rebuild or try and restock, and they went with the the rebuilding path. And so Henderson was traded to the Toronto Blue Jays. Now. The Blue Jays were in the exact opposite situation. They were a surging team that was looking to win the AL East and was just absolutely dominating that season. And looking like a team that could make a World Series run, it felt like Henderson was the piece that they needed to put themselves over the top. Ricky is pretty good once he gets there. He doesn't hit for a ton of average, only hitting .215, but he does steal 22 bases and score 37 runs across 44 games for the Toronto as they go on to finish strong. They win the AL East and advance into the playoffs. Now, in the playoffs, they first face the White Sox in the ALCS, and Henderson struggles, as he will actually throughout most of the postseason. He hits one twenty with no stolen bases, but he does score uh, four runs in six games, so he does contribute. But the uh, Toronto goes on to win that series in six games, and head to the World Series against Philadelphia. Now again, Henderson struggles in the World Series, uh, hitting just two twenty-seven in the series. But he does end up stealing a base. He's got two RBIs and he scores six runs in six games. So he does still contribute. It's just not usually in the way we expect him to. Or at the level, I should say, that we expect him to there in the playoffs. But uh, Toronto does go on to win uh, the World Series that year. It was revealed later after the season that Henderson was actually playing with a broken bone in his hand throughout the season. Once he came over to Toronto, somewhere in the very beginning of that, after that trade, he had broken a bone in his hand. And this helps explain, I think, why he struggled a little bit, especially hitting the ball. But it is worth noting that Henderson was a part of one of the most iconic moments in, in baseball history, which is Joe Carter hitting the walk-off World Series winning home run, which... We'll do a Joe Carter episode uh, eventually here, but of course, it's, I mean you think about that's that's what you sit in your backyard thinking about, right, bottom of the ninth, World Series on the line, and hitting that walk-off home run. It just really is one of the coolest moments in baseball history, one of the most iconic. If this was a movie and you wrote it, you'd say this is too contrived sort of moment, uh, and, and Ricky Anderson was a part of it as he was on base at the time, and one of the runs scored during that home run, so... That's cool. Now, in the offseason, Ricky's a free agent. And so he actually decides to re-sign with Oakland. So he comes back home again, choosing from what I understand familiarity with the team, with La Russa, to come back and keep continue his career. And this makes some sense. It's worth noting again, at this point, he's 35. He's won two World Series, so he doesn't have to like ring chase or anything like that. He can still play. It makes a ton of sense that he would come back home. But to look at that season, it's 1994. We know what happens here. The strike will greatly shorten the season and end it prematurely and continue on into the beginning of the 1995 season where three, uh, what, about three weeks, three, four, almost a month is cut off of that season as well thanks to the strike as a whole. So, in 94, he plays in 87 games, hits 260 with a 411 OBP and a 776 OPS, which is good for a 111 OPS+. plus. He steals 22 bags. He hits 6 home runs with 13 doubles and 66 runs scored across those 87 games. Now... Obviously, because there was no World Series, there were no playoffs. Oakland does not make the playoffs that year. And in 1995, across 112 games, he plays really well, hitting 300 with a 407 OBP and an 855 OPS, which was good for a 132 OPS plus. He hits nine home runs, steals 32 bases uh, to go along with uh, 72 walks, 31 doubles, and 67 runs scored. Oakland wasn't particularly good that year. In fact, they only won 67 games that season. He's a free agent again in the offseason, and this begins what I like to call the Kung Fu stretch of Ricky Henderson's career at the tail end here. And if that makes no sense, that means you were too young to know the TV show Kung Fu, where I believe David Carradine... Played a wandering Shaolin monk who wandered around the American West, you know, going on adventures and do righting wrongs and doing stuff like that. And anyways, that's basically what Ricky Henderson does. He kind of wanders around the the West Coast for the most part, playing with several different teams, trying to find a home and helping different teams out and playing for different teams, but never really sticks in one place for too long. Now, the first of those teams was with the San Diego Padres. Now, in 1996, the Padres are pretty darn good. They win 91 games and win the NL West that year. Now, Henderson's pretty good for them. He doesn't quite hit for the same batting average that we expect out of him, hitting .241 with a 754 OPS, which is good for a 108 OPS plus at the time. But he does steal 37 bags for them. He scores 110 runs to go along with 9 home runs and 17 doubles. In the playoffs, the Padres faced the St. Louis Cardinals in the National League Division Series, and Henderson's pretty solid. He hits three thirty-three with no stolen bases this time around, but he does hit a home run. He scores two runs in three games. He plays pretty darn well, but unfortunately... The Padres will lose that series in three games, and for the most part, the Padres were pretty darn receptive to Henderson, Tony Gwen, you know the Padre Mr. San Diego Padre said about Henderson, the negative stuff people were talking about when we got him here that he was going to come to spring training late, that he was going to be a disruptive force in the clubhouse. I haven't seen it. I've seen a guy who's prepared. I've seen a guy who works hard, loves to help young guys, and who's on whatever the club has asked him to do, not only on the field, but off the field. So uh, he fit right in in San Diego, but unfortunately his production wasn't quite what they're looking for, and so despite the fact that he had signed a two-year contract with them in the offseason, he is traded to the Anaheim Angels at the deadline in the 1997 season. He had played pretty well for the Padres, hitting 274 and crossed 88 games with 29 stolen bases and six home runs and 11 doubles with 63 runs scored. But they, once he gets over to Anaheim, he struggles mightily. He hits only 183. And he does steal 16 bases in 32 games while scoring 21 runs, but it's just not the same as if there's a clear well, fall off. Once he gets over there. And so therefore when he is a free agent the following year. At the end of the 97 season. He does not return to Anaheim. And therefore decides to go just up the road. Back to the Bay Area. And he plays once again for Oakland in 1998. He struggles in certain areas in 1998. He hits just 236. a 723 OPS. Which is actually the first time on the season. He is hit for an OPS plus. Below 100 since, well, let's look. Since 1979. Now think about it. 1979 was his rookie year. This is 1998. So that's almost 20 years in between seasons in which he had an OPS Plus below 100. That's absolutely incredible. He was 20 the first time he did that. He is 39 here when he does that. That is a remarkable, remarkable stretch of... Consistency and production, not just, uh, honestly, not just in the stolen bases category. When we're talking OBS right now, so we're talking about from a place of uh, surprising power and great batting average and hitting for extra bases. It's just, man, it's mean, just an incredible 20 year stretch. Now, he does lead both leagues in stolen bases with 66 stolen bases, and he leads the AL and walks with 118 uh, while also scoring 101 runs. In across 152 games with 16 doubles, 14 home runs as well, and 57 RBIs. So all in all, pretty darn good season considering, considering at 39, he's well past the length of your usual career. And also, frankly, he's about to hit his fourth decade on the planet. After Oakland in 1999, he signs a two-year deal with the Mets. And... It goes okay with mixed results. Uh, his production is great in 1999. He hits 315 with a 423 OBP and 889 OPS, which is good for a 128 OPS. Plus, he steals 36 bases to go along with 75 runs scored across 121 games. He played so well at the age of 40 that he was named the Sporting News' Comeback Player of the Year that year. And he was instrumental for the Mets making the playoffs that year. In the NLDS against Arizona, he is fantastic. He gets 400 with, with six stolen bases in the series. And this is only a four-game series. He has an RBI. He scores five runs. He absolutely helps... The Mets win over Arizona. But then in the NLCS, he struggles. Hitting 174 with a stolen base with just two runs scored in six games. They lose to Atlanta that year. And there, there, there starts to be some reports of discord amongst the Mets and Ricky Henderson. For the large part, there were reports that came out that he was playing cards in the clubhouse with Bobby Bonilla during game six of the series against Atlanta that uh, that he wasn't the, the best teammate and Henderson denies the allegation he basically demanded publicly that the accuser would confront him face to face with that accusation and he ends up showing up late to spring training and this is one of those things that like you know, he gets tagged at this, but if it wasn't a good working environment, if it wasn't a place he felt like he fit in, I get this. We've all done this at work. What, quiet quitting is kind of a thing right now, right? Um, and that's what Henderson is doing here. He just didn't like the situation. And I don't know. I wasn't in that clubhouse, so who knows who was at fault in that situation. But it really didn't mix. It's just not a good match for the Mets. And so they actually release him in May of 2000. He then signs with Seattle and plays out the year. There. Overall, he struggles in 2000, hitting just 233 with a 673 OPS, which was good for a abysmal 78 OPS plus. He steals just 36 bases with 14 doubles and just four home runs and 75 runs scored on the year. Seattle does make the playoffs that year in 2000 where in the ALDS against the White Sox, Henderson is great, hitting 400 with a 900 OPS. He steals a base, scores five runs in the three-game series. Then in the ALCS against the Yankees, he struggles a bit more, hitting just 222 with no stolen bases and just two runs scored in the three games in that series as well as the Mariners would then lose to the Yankees. The year after that, Henderson moves on from Seattle and goes to back to the Padres, who, as you mentioned before, it was a great fit. They loved him there. This seemed like a good place for Henderson to come back to. And unfortunately, at this point, he's 42. His legs are starting to fail him, which makes sense at that age. And so he hits just 227 with a 7.17 OPS, which is good for a 95 OPS plus. Let's be honest, being just 5% worse than the average hitter by OPS at 42 is pretty darn impressive, actually. He does steal 25 bases in 123 games, and he ends up scoring 70 runs for the season. And while the Padres wouldn't make the playoffs that year, it was actually a big season for Henderson, historically speaking. He... He, this was the season that he would actually take over as the all-time leader in walks. It was also the season he would take over as the all-time leader in runs scored, surpassing Ty Cobb. It's just a big year for Ricky in terms of cementing his place in the record books and in history. And Henderson was quoted during one of the speeches. For, for setting one of these records. When I first started in the big leagues, I felt that as the leadoff hitter, my job was to get on the base paths, create stuff and score some runs to help my teammates win some ball games. It just happens over the 23 years, I think. I went out there and did my job as well as I could and all of a sudden, it's a record breaker. It's just an honor. And he even said, going out and scoring so many runs is not just an individual record. It's a record that you've got to have your teammates help you out. And in the 23 years, I have have had some great teammates. And I think that speaks to the idea that whatever the press wanted to say about Ricky Anderson, whatever you know, certain teams wanted to say about him, it seems like he was a great teammate who loved winning baseball and helping uh, his team win baseball games. And you can just hear it in what he's saying after he set records like this. That, that doesn't speak to me as a guy who doesn't feel like it was a team sport, that, that he needed everybody around him as well. The following year, Henderson would actually be signed to a minor league contract in 2002 with the Boston Red Sox. And if you really want to say it's going to kind of blow you away. At this point in his career, Henderson had stolen 1,395 bases, which actually totaled more than the entire Red Sox franchise over the, the time period of Henderson's career it's insane. They had amassed 1,382 stolen bases over that time period. It's just insane how good Ricky Henderson was up at this point in his career. But obviously this is the twilight of his career. He would only end up playing in 72 games for Boston that year. He hit two twenty-three with 8 stolen bases, just 16 RBIs, just 40 runs scored. Just was not a complete season for him. And he's 43 years old. This is easily the twilight of his career. This brings us to really the final sort of story in Henderson's playing career, which I remember when this happened, it was outrageous. It was almost unheard of in the offseason. and no team really would sign Henderson. So he actually signs a contract with an independently team, the Newark bears of the Atlantic league. And I mean, he's 44. At the time, he was, uh, I guess, making $3,000 playing for a team, and he made millions of dollars over his career. And basically, the way the the Sabre.org write-up describes it, that was basically a Class AA team that he was playing with. And the thing is, to me, this is one of those things that, at the time, I was, what, 2003, I was 18 years old. I thought this was outrageous. I, I thought that this is Ricky Henderson we're talking about. And just and said, you're washed up. Just hang up your cleats, man. You're 43. And I think, or 44 even. And I think that now looking back on it, there's this testament to how much Henderson loved playing baseball. And, and that there is evidence throughout his career that's, that tend to imply that, that Henderson was that that kind of guy who just lived for baseball, that it was in his blood, that he really saw the game as a thing that brought him joy and brought him accomplishments and glory, but also brought him thrills and teammates and pride. And it's just a really cool, in retrospect, looking back, a thing to see someone who's confident enough to say, you know what? I'm going to put all all." you know, of my pride. I'm going to kind of stomach playing for a team well below what my skill level used to be and and just give it a shot because I I just love playing baseball and, and I can't walk away from it yet. And he was even quoted as saying, if I don't feel I have the skills, I'd be happy to hang up my shoes and go be with my kids. But I know I have the skill, the speed guys who can score runs. I think I'm better than the guys in the major leagues. I get the chance. And obviously he's not, in this moment, he's again, he's 44. He's has not hit over 250 in the last three seasons he's played. Uh, he, there is that level which this is a little overconfident, but I get the sentiment and I get the idea of not necessarily being able to let go, but also still seeing your fast, still seeing the speed and the eyes and, the, and all that stuff, and and wanting to give it another go. And it works out. Most people didn't think he would get another shot, but on in the way through season in, in July of that year. He signs with the Dodgers, and he ends up playing 30 games for him. He only bats 208, but when he really only steals three bases for him, it doesn't really do too much at all. He only amasses about 84 plate appearances or so. That would be his final year in the majors then at that point, which is a really impressive 25-year career. It's really remarkable what he was able to accomplish in the major leagues and his longevity, and how long, especially from a speed standpoint, that his speed stayed relevant, is really impressive. And to look at, just think of it this way. At the end of that career, he was the all-time leader in runs scored with 2,295. He's the all-time leader in stolen bases, 1,406. And while he's no longer the all-time leader in walks, he is second on the list just to Barry Bonds with 2,190. You're talking about a guy who may have been the best of the best at getting on base and and scoring runs, you know, of all time. Really, this is the consummate leadoff hitter. And you, his resume speaks for himself. He ended up with a 127 OPS+. Plus. For his career, which again, for someone who's considered a leadoff hitter, was remarkable, especially considering he played in an era that was known for lower offensive numbers, a 127 OPS plus is pretty darn impressive. That's with an 820 OPS for his career, and and 111.2 career WAR is incredibly impressive. That think about it. I mentioned this in the first episode here, but that's 19th all time. It's just barely 2.6 WAR behind Lou Gehrig for instance, but as ahead of Mickey Mantle, Frank Robinson, Mike Schmidt, Greg Maddox, Albert Pujols. You can just go down the list. Calgary Jr., it's more Roberto Clemente. It's more an Adrian Beltray. It's more than George Brett. Mike Trout, Ken Griffey Jr. Like, you go down the list and it's just player after player after player, and Henderson's got them all beat, which is incredibly impressive. And for the sake of putting context to just how much... Henderson dominated the speed and leadoff department over the time period of his career. Ricky Henderson from, you know, 1979 to, to what, 2003, stole 1,406 bases. Over that time period, the next closest hitter was Tim Raines with 807. That's. One off, so it's five hundred ninety nine stolen bases more than the second place guy over that time period, which is crazy. He scored the most runs over that time period as well with two thousand two hundred ninety five, which was, which is three hundred fifty more runs than the next, the number two, uh, player over that time period in runs, Barry Bonds, who had one thousand nine hundred forty one. It's just remarkable how dominant in so many ways he was in these statistics. You go down the line and walks, he is number one in walks over that time period. Again, just ahead of Bonds by 120 walks. And it's worth noting Bonds is number two on this list, right? And this is a remarkable stat, you know, himself. We're going to get the Bonds here pretty shortly on this podcast next episode. But. Bonds walked 2070 times over that time period. 484 of those walks were intentional walks. Henderson walked 2190 times over that time period and was intentionally walked just 61 times. So in when you're talking about being prolific at actually drawing walks, Henderson was far and away better over that time period. Obviously I think getting intentionally walked so much is a different testament to Bonza's skill and to obviously his spot in the batting order. But, but Henderson earned with his eye and with his patience and with his bat all of those walks. And I find that really impressive in a different way than I find Bonza's walk totals impressive. So uh, that's something to keep in mind. It's just an incredible career. It really is remarkable what Henderson was able to do over the 24 years he played in the major leagues. And one of the things I love about doing this podcast, one of the things I love about looking at players like this is I knew at the time he was playing how explosive, how great, how entertaining Ricky Henderson was. But A, obviously didn't have the context for where that really fits in the history of baseball. But B, really just got how great he was. Not just amongst his peers, uh, but historically. And looking at a player who, as you start to go to the list again, 19th all-time in war is incredible. It's, it's outrageous. And I don't... It's not to say I don't know if we were aware we were watching an all-time great. I, I think that there are times where... You watch, and you're like, this is one of the greatest players of all time. And I don't know that we got that. I don't know if we really, truly appreciated that in its moment. I think some of that's the byproduct of being an, uh, a leadoff hitter, so he doesn't quite put together the, the the sexy numbers that we think of. Even though he did hit almost 300 home runs, he had 297 over his career. That the leadoff hitter is maybe the most underappreciated position in the lineup. In baseball, in my opinion, I think that there's a place where we sit down and say, when you have a bad leadoff hitter, you do nothing but complain about them and you do nothing about, but you do nothing but really hate on them. But when you have a good one, and in some cases, a historically great one, you don't really give them the credit sometimes I think they deserve. And I, I know at the time I wasn't either. And I think. Looking through it and giving this big career retrospective on Henderson, I'm able to come back and say that this is one of the greatest players of all time. And even more so than that, because I don't even think that phrase does him justice. We're talking about a guy who changed the way we saw the leadoff position. And also, frankly, the way, you know, changed the way we saw in Major League Baseball. The, the entertainment side of the game and how we see the job of a baseball player beyond just winning baseball games or performing on the field. It reminds me a lot of going back and looking at some of the, the Negro League players we talked about, or uh, whether it be like Satchel Page. I know I've drawn that comparison a lot, but uh, that. They felt they needed to entertain, and that was part of the game. It was it was being a showman as well, and and Henderson got that. And I don't, again, I think we like to tell jokes about it, and we like to tell stories, and I'm just as guilty of it as as anyone. You heard me tell the stories in the first part of this, a sort of two-parter, that and I love the stories about Ricky Henderson. I love telling stories about Ricky Henderson and telling the stories that have been told throughout baseball history about Ricky Henderson. But they sometimes are, are treated a bit like not like a joke, but like a novelty, and I think it misses how much Henderson got the entertainment part of the game, and that he knew what being a showman meant to the fans and to the game. It's frankly something I think we're lacking in a lot of ways from the current game in some ways, or I should say we often try to beat out of players when they try to be those kind of showmen. And uh, I think it's something baseball sorely missing. I think if you were to ask me to find one player without history, I think baseball could use having like a modern version of. It's Ricky Henderson. I think we need a showman. I think we need someone who says, I get that part of my job isn't just to, to, to put up numbers and play the game, but to make it entertaining, to make it, this sort of thing that you can't turn off, you can't turn away from, because you don't know what's going to happen. You never know what an incredible thing is going to happen, but also never know what's going to be said and what is going to what's going to happen from an entertainment standpoint. And I really think it's something baseball is sorely missing. And again, even if you remove the entertainer part of it, it's still an incredibly remarkable career, given that he's the all-time leader in so many categories. And, and just amassed a really great career with an MVP, and as you've probably heard me say in episode one, should have won multiple MVPs to go along with being a ten-time All-Star and being part of several different World Series-winning teams. It's just a remarkable player with a remarkable career. Now, after he retires, Henderson doesn't quite leave baseball. He actually becomes a special instructor for the Mets throughout spring training, and then would end up becoming the first base coach in 2007. He would be inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in 2009, and then eventually that same year, his number was retired by the Athletics. That's number 24, and he has bounced around doing different jobs throughout Major League Baseball. Since then, uh, apparently as of 2017, he's the special assistant to the Oakland A's, and uh, primarily with President uh David Cavall, I don't know if he's still the president of the Oakland A's, and then the Oakland A's actually named the playing field is at Oakland Coliseum at OCO, which this may not be the greatest comp in the world, considering that is not the greatest stadium in the world. And know the A's are about to leave, so this won't be that way for very long, but they did name the playing field after Henderson in 2017. And I believe they they did yes the following year built a big giant I believe it's a 17 or 18 feet tall uh, statue outside of Oakland Coliseum the the year after he left his mark on the A's franchise and on baseball as a whole we'll see I, and where that all goes as the A's move to Las Vegas and with all the different things that, that's going on with the A's I hope that doesn't end up that they don't end up losing sight of what Henderson meant to that franchise and to Oakland as a whole. That's where he's come up to through today. Again, it's just hard to not really think about the impact Ricky Henderson had on baseball. And it'll be interesting to see if there's more in store for Henderson to come as he continues his career in baseball, if he chooses to. So now, with that in mind, let's take actually our first break here. And then what we're going to do is we're going to come back, we're going to rank Ricky Henderson, and then... Once we do that, we're going to talk about and rank a few players who I think are today's like equivalent of the Ken Griffey Jr., Ricky Henderson mold of player. But before we do that, let's pay some bills, and then we'll be right back.
0: When it comes to weight management, we tend to put our focus on what we eat, but Noom's approach puts the focus on why we eat, and that's a game changer. Noom uses science and personalization and based on a sample of 4272 numers 98% say noom helps change their habits and behaviors for good try noom today and see the results for yourself sign up for your trial today at noom.com that's n o o m.com to sign up for your trial today Welcome back.
1: Now let's talk about ranking Ricky Henderson. Obviously, we don't need to debate or talk about whether or not he was a Hall of Famer. Obviously, that is a no-brainer. But where on our list of players does Ricky Henderson end up? Where should he go? And first, before we do that, though, let's actually revisit the list. Uh, For those who may not have it memorized like I do, uh, because I have to look at it all the time. The top 10 first are... Sadaharu O at number 1, Satchel Page at number 2, Josh Gibson at number 3, Mickey Mantle at number 4, Greg Maddux at number 5, Mike Trott at number 6, Ken Griffey Jr. at number 7, Ichiro Suzuki at number 8, George Brett at number 9, and Adrian Beltre at number 10. And number 11 is Shohei Otani, Clayton Kershaw is number 12, Edgar Martinez is number 13, Sandy Koufax number 14, Tony Gwynn is number 15, Hank Greenberg is number 16. Nolan Arnado is number 17. Joey Votto is number 18. Scott Rollins, number 19. And Ron is number 20. Jumping down to number 25 is Willie Stargil. Number 30 is Mariano Rivera. Number 35 is Jose Altuve. Number 40 is Oral Hersheiser. Number 45 is Jim Catt. Number 50 is Jorge Posada. Number 55 is Matt Williams. Number 60 is Doc Dwight Gooden. At number 65 is Robin Ventura. At number 70 is Mark Pryor. And to round up the list currently at 71 is James Paxton, who, interestingly enough, is having a quite a resurgence, actually, right now in, in Major League Baseball, which I didn't anticipate. And I'm really excited to see how well he does this year, just because it's great to see him come back. I'm very excited to see him pitching well and healthy again. But anyways, moving on from that, where does Henderson end up on this list? Where do, Where does he fit? And looking up the list, so at number ten you have Adrian Beltre, and at number nine you have George Brett. And as I mentioned before, he's outpaced both those players in WAR by quite a bit, uh, by almost to about fifteen WAR uh, for both of them. Obviously, I think we go beyond Beltre and Brett. Each is an interesting question. At number eight, very similar players in terms of their playing style, and really, first off on an entertainment level, but also on their impact on baseball and telling the story of baseball. Both huge players in that context as well. So I thought it, this would be a good place to do a little bit of a player comparison. Henderson, and we'll keep in mind here for the record that when we talk about Ichiro, obviously Ichiro obviously played for quite a bit of time in Japan, before coming over to the U.S., so some of these numbers are not in the full context of of Ichiro's total playing career. So we'll keep that in mind as we rank them, but and discuss them. But I wanted to remember that there are some things unaccounted for before we rush to judgment. Now, in the majors, Ricky Anderson played 3,081 games. Ichiro played 2,653. Now, Ichiro actually, over the time period, amassed more hits than Henderson with 3,089 to Henderson's 3,055. Henderson had more doubles over his career, 510 to Ichiro's 362. And Henderson hit about 180 more home runs. Henderson hit 297. Ichiro at 117. And same for stolen bases. Way outpaced him with 1,406 for Henderson to 509 for, for Ichiro. Henderson was a 127 OPS plus hitter, whereas Ichiro was a 107 OPS plus hitter for his career. And then on the other hand, Ichiro hit 311 for his career. Rick Anderson hit 279. But on the other trade-off to that, Ichiro had a 355 OBP for his career. Henderson had a 401 OBP for his career and had uh, Suzuki beat in OPS as well with an 820 mark to a 757 mark. Now, with that being said, again, it's worth keeping in mind that to give you an idea of Ichiro's numbers in Japan before he came here, there's another 1,278 hits, 211 doubles, and 118 home runs that we're not accounting for, as well as another 200 stolen bases for Ichiro where he hit three fifty three with a 421 OBP over 9 seasons. Again, it's not a perfect comparison numbers-wise here that we're making, but I think in the long run Henderson was just was was better. I think he's the all-time runs leader. I think that he, in fact, what is it? Ricky had how many runs total in his career? He had 2295, which even if you throw in Ichiro's numbers in Japan, he still only gets 2,078. He still only gets 708 stolen bases for his career. So when you talk about the numbers that we're looking at here, he still doesn't get there. And there's an argument, let's say Ichiro over his time period in the, playing in the US. Let's see, he put up, how much war did he put up per season over his career? He put up roughly like 3.7 war per year and probably in his heyday Really, in his prime, put up probably more like, let's see, let's take a look. He put up more like, like five to six war every season, roughly. And so if we did that and threw in those extra nine, maybe threw in another 45 war, to his 60 war that he accumulated in the majors, yeah, you're probably talking, he hits the 100 war mark, which is incredible. But again, Henderson's up to 111. He's 19th all time, like I think, I think Ricky Henderson goes above Ichiro Suzuki here, and at the very least, we could move him up to number eight on the list. But who's number seven? Griffey. And the truth is, while Ken Griffey Jr. is awesome, there might be an argument for Henderson being above Griffey, which sounds wild. Just sounds wild to me at first because I mean, it's Griffey. It's one of the most iconic players ever. But you look and their numbers aren't outrageously all that different. Obviously, Griffey, hit 630 home runs, hit way more home runs. But it's interesting. Griffey was a 136 OPS plus hitter over his career. Henderson, as I mentioned before, is only a 127 OPS plus hitter, hitting in a different position in the lineup, which is remarkable. When you really think about it contextually, he Henderson was not that far behind Griffey in batting average, but had him in OBP by about 30 points. Griffey hit 524 doubles, whereas Henderson hit 510. Now again, Griffey hit 630 home runs swell. So he's definitely got him in the extra base department. Griffey only stole 184 bases over his time period. Henderson stole 1,406. It very difficult, it's a much more difficult I should say decision than I thought it would be in a lot of ways, even in OPS itself, uh, Griffey had a 907 career OPS, Henderson's not that far behind at 820, it's a huge difference, it's 80 points, but it's not as far uh, apart as you would think it would be, considering that Griffey hit almost 330 more home runs than Henderson did, but the one thing that it comes down to for me is that Henderson put up again 111.2 war. Griffey only put up 83.3, 83.8 I should say, war in his career. And yes, you can make the argument that's longevity, that at some point Henderson played a few more years than Griffey and obviously did not have the same injury issues that Griffey had throughout his career. But longevity should be rewarded. It shouldn't be the end all be all. And it would, far from calling Henderson an accumulator, because that's not fair at all. But we're talking almost 30 war more from Henderson to, to Griffey, right? There's a part where you just have to say, I think that matters, that longevity and that health over his career matters to me. And, and I think should matter to you as well. So I think actually looking at it, because of that, I think Henderson goes in front of Griffey. Which again, I would not have told you. I think w- would have been the case before I started doing the research for this podcast episode, and, and and looking at the context and looking just how great Henderson was over his career. Now we get to Mike Trout. Now, in a lot of ways, Trout is a an interesting discussion in that, if nothing else, Trout hasn't played anywhere near as long as henderson did because we're still in the midst of trout's career he's only played 12 seasons in the majors and this is where we start getting into something i have to do sometimes with players whose careers are not done we have to project out a little bit where they're where i think they're going to end up and we've talked before about trout since that episode wasn't too long ago Uh, but he has 85.4 war to his career and unfortunately he's hurt right now in the current season but with 12, twelve years under his belt, I, I expect him to play a lot longer than that. he's only thirty-one. I think it's a perfectly reasonable assessment to expect Trout to get right around a hundred WAR or so in his career, and that's still pretty shy of that one eleven-point-two WAR that Henderson put up. But it's close enough when you consider that then Trout has him, you know, outpaced in uh, you know, home runs. And OPS Plus, this is the wild one. So, whereas Griffey and Henderson are a little closer in OPS, Henderson had that 820 OPS mark for his career. Trout has a 994 career OPS. He's a 174 OPS Plus over his career so far. He's hit 301 over his career to Henderson's 279 batting average. And actually has a higher OBP with a 412 career OBP, which is a nutty number, to Henderson's 401 OBP. Henderson was never really considered an elite outfielder in terms of defending his position, whereas Trout has been known as one of the best center fielders in the game for a large chunk of his career. So I this is an interesting one, because uh, then there's some other trade-offs, but I, so many of them are longevity-based, right? So like Trout has just 368 home runs to, to Henderson's 297, but again, he's played half of the seasons that, that Henderson has, I, mean, I expect Trout to get somewhere around 400, four, I'm sorry, above 400, probably 450, maybe even knocking on the door of 500 home runs by the time all is said and done. Not finishing all that far behind in in doubles. He's got 310. I expect him to be closer to Henderson's 510 as well. Uh, now, the interesting thing, though, is, and this is the one weird off is then you start getting into the nitty-gritty, and things are swinging back in Henderson's direction because Trout is already approaching Henderson in RBIs with 940, two Henderson's 1,115, but he's nowhere near him in stolen bases. Trout only has 206 stolen bases, two Henderson's 1,406. And the thing you would expect for such a high MVP is that Trout would be closer to Henderson in walks. Trout has 964 walks, with 119 of them being intentional, by the way. Henderson, 2,190. Now, so even if you were to say Trout's got twelve years, Henderson at twenty four, let's just double it. He still falls well short. That's only about nineteen hundred walks to Henderson's twenty one ninety. There's a place where you start to say maybe even though he didn't hit for the batting average that Mike Trout did, there are these little things like Henderson walked better. Trout obviously it'll be interesting to see if Trout can get to three thousand hits. He's got sixteen hundred. 23 right now and again if we just straight doubled it sure he would get there but that's as he ages and things that's not how it's going to work so it'd be interesting if trout can get to 3,000 hits but henderson did and they don't they play obviously radically different roles in their their lineups because even though trout mostly has hit second in his career his goal is still to drive in runs his goal is to still hit home runs which was not what henderson's job was now, on the other hand, also, Trout has scored 1,106 runs to Henderson's 2,295. Even, again, if we doubled it, he would probably get close, but I don't think he'd surpass Henderson there. So I, I get into a place where I start to wonder if, if this isn't just a question of what we choose to value here, and also then how I project out the rest of Trout's career. Now, the one other caveat to Trout's career is, again, if we're going to value longevity... You look down the, the war numbers, and it, it is tough in that in 2021, Trout puts up was worth just a 1.8 war in 2021. And that makes sense. He only played in 36 games that year because of injury. In 2022, he was worth 6.3 war. But then this year, he's got another major injury and is only at 2.9 war. So I expect Trout to, like I said, easily get to 100 war. But I, I don't necessarily know it's set in stone for sure. But even if he did, Henderson still has another 11 war on that number, even if he got up to that, high, that, that 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 100 war mark here. So I think, and we'll revisit this at the end of the year probably and throughout Trout's career, but I think for now, I think, man, this is a tough one. I think Henderson goes above Trout. I, I think he does. It's tough, but I think... I, I just—it's hard to ignore that WAR number. It's hard to say I—I I put Trout above Henderson before Trout does it, because like even some of those numbers, you talk about the the one seventy four OPS plus as, as a good example. If you take the years, if you take the first twelve years of Henderson's career from seventy nine through what ninety two. Let's say he's a 139 OPS plus he ends up at 127 OPS plus for his career because as he aged, obviously those numbers dropped. We haven't seen what that will look like for Trout as he gets older. And obviously some of those things I'm giving him bonuses of, of being a better hitter or things like that. It's because we haven't seen him once he gets on the other side of his prime yet, like we did for Henderson and for a lot of hitters. So it'll be interesting to see where that all ends up per se for Trout. Man, this is just a really tough one. And obviously somewhat the list needs a little reshuffling maybe because there's a part of me that thinks he goes above Maddox because he's got almost 20 war on Maddox for his career, but Maddox won Cy Young's and things like that. But is the hard part with Trout too is Trout's a, what, four-time MVP? Three-time MVP. He's a three-time MVP, he's an 11-time All-Star already, was a much better defender. Now, you know what, the more and more I talk myself into it, I think this is the perfect spot for him actually. I think he goes in as our new number seven, right above Ken Griffey Jr. and right behind Mike Trout. And some of that, as I mentioned, he should have won so many more MVPs than he did. He was genuinely robbed of multiple MVPs. But it's hard to say. I mean, Trout won won three of them. Maddox is a multi Cy Young Award winner. And is the definitive picture of his generation in a way that Trout was the definitive hitter of his generation, our current generation. So I think this pays proper respect to what Henderson was able to accomplish in his career, and doesn't discount the role that he was asked to play as a leadoff hitter, and and also accounts for the the showmanship of Henderson and what he was able to contribute to the game of baseball uh, that way as well. And this is it. Really does boil down to this: you can't tell the story of baseball in the 1980s and the 1990s without including Ricky Henderson, without focusing in a large part on Ricky Henderson. There's no way around that. And I think all those factors come in to say he goes above Griffey, but I do think, think he stays right there behind Mike Trout. So again, Ricky Henderson, the new number seven on our list here. Okay, so with that taken care of, let's actually take our... Last break here real quick. And then we're going to come back and we're going to talk a little about some current players that I think fit this sort of cool, cultural, zeitgeist, impactful player who seems put on the to play baseball. But also kind of has the swagger and the kind of player that we all imitate in our backyards and want to be and all those sort of things. So let's take that break and then we'll be right back and we'll talk about some current players. Welcome back. So... It's interesting because I I just said that I feel like baseball needs desperately an infusion of a Ricky Henderson, Ken Griffey Jr. type player. We need that showman. We need that cool back in baseball a little bit. And I don't know if we'll get it because, as you'll often hear me rant about, we have far too many, mostly white, announcers and, and people in baseball who poo-poo bat flips or players being entertaining or nowadays if you speak out of line or say something that's even remotely frankly interesting you get skewered in the media that there's a lot of things and it's worth noting that we did it then too Uh, as much as we now look back on Henderson's the way he talked about baseball and the way he talked about himself and although we would have never let him get away with that today but we also didn't really then either remember as we went through this he got painted often as a as a clubhouse cancer, even though that wasn't anywhere close to true. It got painted as a selfish player, even though team after team made clear that's not how they saw Henderson, and that's not how Henderson played. That all these different things that kind of worked against Henderson. So it's not like we suddenly were good back then to to players who are outspoken and entertaining and things like that. It seems like we also were pretty hard on them then, too. But we're especially hard on them now. And I think that there's there's an argument that it would be hard to have a true like replication of Henderson in today's game. But we could probably at least get Griffey's level of entertaining in today's game. And I think we have a couple players who do that. And there's some guys who I think we won't necessarily... Discuss quite yet and I'm not going to get to all of them because uh, there's a bunch of different possibilities that's what's really exciting but also at the same time there's some that I want to save for other episodes say Mookie Betts who I think certainly fits that role in a lot of ways he's got that same swagger and cool easiness to him that I really love and and I really enjoy but I want to save him for a time when I can do justice to his full nine-year career, even though he's been absolutely incredible this season. I was just looking at his numbers now, and he's already at 4.2 war. We just got back from the All-Star game, and he's already at 4.2 war. That's astonishing. But like I said, I want to do Mookie Betts as an episode at some point. So uh, I don't want to get in and rank him yet and do all that stuff, even though I think he's a good candidate for this type of player. I was thinking of kind of younger players who... What I thought of this as was a way to look at some of these younger players that we want to talk about, but not necessarily, they haven't been in the league long enough to really dedicate a full episode to, or a chunk of an episode to. I think you can make the same argument for someone like Ronald Acuna Jr., and that's kind of the first guy we'll talk about here, is, is Acuna Acuna right now is the most electrifying player out, not named Shohei Otani, in baseball right now. When he is healthy, and when he's been healthy so far in his career, and he's got six years in the majors counting this year, when he's healthy, when he plays healthy, he's outrageously incredible. And he, he's having an outrageous year. So far, that just just blows my mind. Look at it this way. In his six seasons, he's had at least 20 home runs, three times he's had at least 25 stolen bases three times as well but the big things to keep in mind is obviously he's had some knee injury issues also one of those years 2020 was the was a pandemic shortened year that was only 60 games long so he did not obviously amount when I say ooh he hit 20 24 to 25 home runs the thing is he hit 14 in 2020 he had 14 home runs in 46 games but there's some really out just incredible seasons here from Ronald Acuña already and he came up and came up at 20 so he has a young phenom part to his game he won rookie of the year in 2018 when he hit 26 home runs and stole 16 bases while hitting 293 as a rookie and then in 2019 he has a fantastic just an unbelievably good season, where he nearly went 40-40. He hit two eighty in two thousand nineteen, with a eight eighty three OPS, which is good for a one twenty one OPS plus, while hitting forty one home runs and stealing thirty seven bases, which led the National League. So led the National League with one hundred twenty seven runs scored, and somehow something that will just forever blow my mind is somehow I don't. Let's look at what was going on in the NL. But he finished his fifth in MVP that year in 2019. And I just don't I don't understand. And I guess it makes sense. He had 5.1 war that season the Cody Bellinger's 8.6 who won the, the award that season. And Bellinger was insane. He was incredible that year. But he did finish behind Kristen Jelich, Anthony to tell Marty. I guess it was the correct note, but it's just an absurd number. go like 40-40. And there's a certain coolness to the way Acuna plays the game, and I think that he has a lot of that sort of grace and electricity that Griffey had. He reminds me a little bit of Griffey in those ways, and obviously he stole more base than Griffey really ever did, or things like that. But, but nonetheless, I, I like. They're just when I watch him play, there's a certain gift from the baseball gods to Ronald Acuna Jr. that I really enjoy and, and really connect in my brain to Griffey especially. And while certain things have messed up some parts of that six-year career so far, the pandemic in 2020, like I said, he was having an outrageously good season. 14 home runs at, in, in those four to six games is crazy. He hurt his knee, was part of it, and so it was in 2021, he hurts his knee, where I believe it was 2021 he hurts his knee. And then really struggled throughout 2022 with power and things like that. So he still sold 29 bases in 2022, but only hit 15 home runs uh, across 119 games. And it sounds like he just came back from that knee injury a little too quickly. Uh, he had torn, I believe, his ACL. and Because in 2023, this year, he's been unbelievably good. For the Atlanta Braves, he's hitting 331 with a 990 OPS, which is good for a 162 OPS plus. Both those marks, by the way, lead the National League. He's leading the National League in total bases with 209. Oh, and again, we're at the. We just literally. The All Star game was two days ago. And he currently has 21 home runs and 41 stolen bases. Like the, He might put up numbers that we haven't seen since guys like Henderson in that era of baseball. 41 stolen bases for a power hitter is crazy. He's already well on the path to possibly hitting 40-40. He might hit 40-60 like 60 or 40-70, which is just crazy. I, I, I don't even know if we've really seen those kind of numbers before. He has He's leading all the majors with 79 runs scored, And he leads the NL in plate appearances with 409. Like, you see the makings of a true first-time MVP. Basically, if he keeps this up for the whole season, he's going to win the MVP. There's just no way. I I don't understand how you would vote for anyone else. And and it's just a remarkable season. I'm so excited to see where it goes. So I I think that's probably my front runner for this kind of uh, question is Acuna Jr. He has put up 22.7 war. And what would be fun to think about is looking at our, to go back to our list here real quick. I'm curious where we think Acuna Jr. would end up. We can honestly probably say looking at probably like Ramos Ramirez at 67 because Ramos Ramirez, who had a much longer career, obviously because Acuna's just getting started. But Ramirez put up 32.4 war over his career. Acuna Jr. put is already, like I said, at 22.5. So he's catching up to him pretty quickly. I'd be willing to even put him above uh, Ronald Ramirez, and i will probably stop somewhere at, like Robin Ventura at 66, which is fun to say. We'll put Ronald Acuna Jr. as our number, that's our new number, 67. And it's not an insult to to say put him behind Robin Ventura. In fact, Robin Ventura needs to be bumped way up the list. Um, that's one that I, I want to fix. So, but Ventura put a 56.1 war over his career. Played 16 years in the majors. So I think that's a good spot to then what we'll do is, I think I said i wanted to do this before, but I basically come through and essentially go through each, all the players are still playing and say, how did this change their rankings? So I have a feeling by the end of the year, we'll be bumping Acuna Jr. up a few, that sort of thing. Then the other player I was thinking about with this was L.A. De La Cruz, right? And we're not going to rank L.A. De La Cruz because he's literally played 30 games in the majors. But Henderson, I feel like I see Ricky Henderson in LA Daily Cruz. And not just because of the power-speed combo or because of anything like that, but he has that swagger. He has that confidence. I don't know if you all saw this, but before the All-Star break, Cruz had a play where he gets on first base, and he stole second base. He then stole third base. And then he stole home. And there was literally a point where he he just steals third. He gets up, he's dusting himself off, and he goes to take his lead, you know like slow casual lead off. And he realizes the pitcher's turned his it's like getting the ball back and turned back to him. And he takes off again and steals home. It was electric. It was incredible. It was a really cool play. It, it was so much fun, and it felt like something Henderson would have done. It felt like something Henderson had the confidence to do. And just Cruz gives me very hard Ricky Henderson vibes. And so I'm not going to rank him because he's just barely started playing, but he has been electric since coming up, and I think that 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 is he fits into that blueprint of someone who I really feel it could be in the the Griffey Henderson mold, especially leaning more towards towards Henderson. And obviously, the other really obvious guy that that we want to make the comparison for here is is Julio Rodriguez, and because he's playing Griffey's position in Seattle. He gets a lot of Griffey comparisons. And I get that. It's a little unfair, I think, to Julio Rodriguez. But um, that's a lot to put on a guy. But he's certainly stepped up to it. And he won Rookie of the Year as well in 2022 when he had an incredible season, hit 28 home runs, stole 25 bases, hit 284, helped lead the Mariners back in the playoffs for the first time in a long time. He was just awesome in 2022 last year. But there's an interesting, and I'm saying he put up a 6.2 or season as a rookie. It's an incredible season, but I, I do, I do think that there's a place where he isn't quite on Griffey's level per se, or Henderson's level in terms of performance so far. But I think in terms of his swagger and his sort of Again, like, just, he's always smiling. He always has that really, like, joyful, like, I I was put on cert to play baseball, and I love every second of it, persona. And I just, I think that fits right into that Griffey-Henderson type of mold. It's really, he's incredibly entertaining to watch play baseball. He, I think there's a really interesting uh, comparison, too, that one of Griffey's big coming-out moments was winning the Home Run Derby when he was young, When he the very famous when he hit the ball off of the warehouse in Camden Yards. And kind of Julio Rodriguez's coming out party, in terms of the public eye, was was also winning the Home Run. I don't think he won. I think he ended up finishing second to Juan Soto. But was in the Home Run Derby where he set records and was just incredibly entertaining. Really reminded pretty much everybody of Griffey really dominating in his first World Series. I mean, his first his first home run derby as well. And I think that there's a place where I, I really can see Julio Rodriguez growing into that type of player, even if he doesn't quite maybe put up all-time historic numbers or things like that. I think you can still fit that persona and that type of player that we're talking about here. And, and I think Julio Rodriguez absolutely does. Those are three players who I feel like, and I won't rank Julio either just because, again, he's only two two years into his career. Not even a full two years into his career. So, I think we'll hold off on that. And at some point with Acuna, we'll we'll tell a little more of his story and things like that. I just thought it would be fun to see where he fit on the list here. At the end of the year, I'm going to do, like I've said before, big roundup episode where i take a lot of the players who are still playing and we'll bump them up the list or down the list and see where they move up to and end up and i will do a little more of a spotlight on him but those are the players that kind of remind me of griffey and of henderson and yeah it's fun to see though that prototype really starting to show back up in in today's game and in today's players with that in mind that's our episode thank you so much for your patience Thank you so much for listening and for coming out and spending this last hour with me talking about one of my all-time favorite players and talking about some fun new players and things like that. Uh, I really appreciate it. It it was a fun episode, I guess, two-part episode to do because I like, I guess, really three parts if you count Griffey. For me, it's fun to look at these prototypes and and what I had seen was see these things pop up throughout history whenever I've done some of these players. And talked about some of these profiles it's fun to see how it works if we want to look at the the prototype itself and say who fits this and who doesn't work backwards opposed to taking the player and then saying do they fit this this prototype and uh, i'm curious to see if you you enjoyed this episode format and to see if you liked then also taking the other players and talking about them. we didn't i don't go in depth on them but it's fun to still talk about And we'll dive, like I said, we'll keep revisiting those players as well and see where they end up. But until then, so next episode, which hopefully will be next Saturday um, coming out, we're going to talk about the other prototype I wanted to talk about, the sort of chip on their shoulder, something to prove even when they have nothing left to prove, plays baseball, angry and pissed off at the world sort of player. And so we're going to kick that off by talking about First, Barry Bonds, that's sort of no brainer in that category, and then we're actually going to start in episode two of that series, talking about Ted Williams. Hopefully, I will see you next Saturday to talk about Barry Bonds, and then we shall go from there. Until then, you can reach the podcast at LB Legacies over on Twitter, or you can reach me. I'm at Daniel J Port on Twitter. And you can reach the podcast at longballlegacies at gmail.com. If you have any comments, any questions at the drill, don't hesitate to reach out. I'd love to talk baseball with you. But until then, enjoy the rest of your weekend, folks. Hopefully the weather's nice and whatever you get to do is fun and relaxing. Catch some baseball. We are back with the second half of the season. It's going to be a fun, fun year. But until then, I'll talk to you later. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so
0: much.